You're listening to Rivercast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderlin, New York. Now here's Pastor Sean. Well, I'm excited to share, as Dan had mentioned, we've been walking through the whole deacon thing, and this whole thing was flipped. I was supposed to preach the first two messages and not the last one, and uh, that's what things do. You go to plan B, and I'm grateful for Steve and Dan to be here, and they both did just fantastic job just uh, beginning to unpack that. And a couple weeks ago, Steve shared how to First Timothy 3, just walking through that list of qualifications about deacons. This is a very new step for us as a church. Uh, because, you know, we've always had pastors, but we've, whether it's one or more, but we've never had deacons before. And so walking through this whole new process, and the Bible has a lot of latitude about deacon ministries. It doesn't say a lot of specifics. It has, says a lot of general things, which means doesn't mean it's not important. Actually, they're very important. But what it means is there's a lot of latitude of how that plays out in the church. And so we're trying to, as a church, just kind of, you know, walk through the process. What does that look like for us? Where are we headed with here as well? And and those qualifications that we took, really just taking the list of, of the descriptions that the Bible gives for, for deacons, we put them on the lists and try to unpack what that means uh, along the way. And just, you know, as we... After this week, we'll go through the actual nominating. We're, you know, as, as members of the church, we'll be asking you to, you know, to actually, as you've prayed through it and we've walked through it, looked at Scripture, to, to recommend to our deacon selection team individuals that you think that God may be calling to serve in that role. Recognize those qualifications are, are each one of them is a requirement. So this is not like if you've ever posted jobs or the HR at work, you know, where they're like, okay, these 10 things we'd like, these other five things, maybe, you know, maybe not. We'd love to have all of this stuff, but if, if not, that's okay. The qualifications that are listed in the Bible for pastors and deacons, every one of them is a requirement. This isn't the kind of thing where it's like, oh, we got, you know, 10 out of 15, that's pretty good. All of them are there for a very important reason um, that, that God has given them to us. And really, it's, they're there to, to ultimately to protect the church. This challenges us as our individual thinking. I don't know if you've ever studied like worldviews or people's view of how they function in life, but in our world here in the U.S., we are a very individualistic, can't tell me what to do. Nobody can tell me what to do. Like if you didn't, the whole thing, what's really behind the, you know, what's even the, the political side of everything is just, we don't like to be told what to do. And we have a very individualistic mindset. We don't have a group mindset. Other cultures and other places, it's a very group thing. You don't focus on your rights. You focus on the needs of the groups of the whole. And so when we look at these lists, we need to realize that the Bible is not written in a Western culture in 2022. What Paul is actually doing is he's protecting the needs of the whole, not individually addressing the, the individual or the rights or the whatever of the one person. He's actually saying, guys, I want the church to be set up that its leaders would never make front page news for bad things. I want to keep you off of People magazine. I want to keep your leaders off the headlines. I don't, you know how we live in a world that all of a sudden you wake up and people discover bad things about politicians. It's like, hello, we live in a simple world. Those things are there. God doesn't want his church, the gospel and the truth of his word to ever end up in that scenario. He wants it, wants us to be able to, to, to live in a way that we can 
trust and look to the leadership and not ever worry about any of those things. So it's never going to be perfect, and we recognize that, but that's, that's why God gives us such a robust list about those kinds of things, trying to keep us as a church family out of all of that kind of stuff. And so, so with that, take your Bible if you would, and look with me in Acts chapter 6. Acts, we're going to look at Acts 6, 7, and 8. Dan did a great job unpacking you kind of the prototype of deacons. I've never been in manufacturing or designing anything new, but you know, we, while the Bible, he explained it so well, that while the Bible in Acts 6 with these seven men that were chosen to take care of the widows in the early church, that people were from all over the, the, the world, literally there in Jerusalem, and some of the, the ladies from out of town were not being taken care of well, and so the apostles said, hey, you pick out seven guys that are going to serve and oversee this to make sure it's taken care of because these ladies are important to, our, to the, the body of Christ and to our, our church family. The Bible didn't call them deacons, but they were kind of the prototype. It was like a designer, you know, an engineer in a back room figuring something out, and it has some sort of code name, you know, and then they finally, marketing department gets a hold of something, then they give it a cool name, whatever, to market it and sell it. So we're in Acts 6, we're in that prototype phase, you know. Later on, by the time we hit 1 Timothy 3, oh, there's a term for these guys, you know, those servers, those guys that are always serving, those those, those, those serve. We're just going to call those servants. That's what they really did. Everybody served, but they especially are the ones that did that. And so Acts 6 unpacks that, kind of the prototype. But the rest of 6, and actually chapter 7 and 8, we're really going to focus on, actually tells us a lot of stuff about two of those people. We usually, you know, we think kind of of the, the, the first seven there as just kind of those early prototypes, but the first two men on the list, Stephen and Philip, that are among those that are chosen, the Bible tells us all kinds of things about them. So what I really want to kind of do today is kind of use Stephen and Philip as kind of a case study to help us to see what their lives were like for all of our benefit, to also certainly to give us a picture of what deacons and what that world looks like. But there's some things in here that all of us, every one of us should emulate uh, to be and to make a part of our life. So read with me if you would. The first piece coming out of the, the widows are taken care of, the, the tables are being taken care of, they're, they're, they're served well, and then the Bible tells us this story about Stephen. So he went from committee meetings, meeting with seven guys, okay, you got these ladies, you got this, enough food's coming in today, we got the hot meal. He went from having that kind of conversation to this. Look what verse 8 says. And Stephen full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. In the Gospel of John, we know the signs means literally he was doing some miracles. They're, as we talked before, they're pointing to Jesus. They're miracles that bless people, that help them with needs. We don't know healings or what exactly was going on. It's really irrelevant. But they're pointing back to the truth of the Gospel, to the grace of Jesus and the wonder of what God was doing in their life. So he was there ministering among people. And in verse 9, then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, think different denominations. They were one particular group of the, the freedmen. And then there were some of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and those of Cilicia. These are countries and locations and Asia. They rose up and disputed with Stephen. They didn't like what they were seeing. You know, somebody does a bona fide miracle I mean, I'm like legit, and more than one, kind of at will, you probably ought to step back and say, 
I need to listen to you and need to think carefully. But they didn't like that. They were disputing and arguing with him and, and kind of taking him to task. In verse 10, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Stephen was speaking with such clarity in the words of God, and they, they couldn't argue against it. So then they secretly instigated men who said, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. That's the same thing that happened to Jesus, by the way. They couldn't convict Jesus of any wrongdoing, so they basically bought off a couple of witnesses to speak against Jesus, things that he really he didn't say, and they ended up getting him crucified. Strategy worked for Jesus. They were going down that same road with Stephen, stirring up behind the scenes against him because they didn't like what they saw. And they stirred up the people and the elders, in verse 12, and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. It's weird to us, but in that world, the Jewish world could arrest somebody. They had authority over civil laws and had their own criminal laws for their culture. They weren't allowed to give people the death penalty except for blasphemy against God and in the temple and those kinds of things. For other, other things, they would have to go to the Romans to, be, to, to execute the death penalty. But they arrested Stephen, trumped up some charges and arrested him under false pretenses. And verse 13, And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law, for we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, I don't really know what the face of an angel looks like, to be honest with you. Christmas time, we have angels on our tree. Our angel on top of our tree is no face, so it's faceless. I don't know if it shined or what exactly that meant, but it stood out, and everybody there looked and said, what is going on? Stephen was an amazing man. And a man that served an amazing God would really be a better way to, to say it. A man that exhibited the grace and the wisdom and the power of God in his life. First thing I want us to recognize is that Stephen was out caring for and ministering among people. In different churches, deacons play different roles. And as I said, there's you know a lot of latitude. In some churches, they have the responsibility over, say, the finances or maybe the buildings. That's kind of the assistance that they do for the church. But I want us to recognize when we look at Stephen and Philip that these weren't just guys who knew how to organize things. They weren't guys that knew how to you know, call the food service trucks in to take care of the, the widows that needed help. They didn't just know how to sit in a, community, com, uh, you know, a, com, a committee meeting to figure things out. They were, they were kind of more like spiritual Marines. Can we say it that way? If you're a Marine and you're in charge of requisitioning logistics, you know how to fight. Like, you know how to shoot. Every Marine knows how to fight. You don't, you're not exempt from that kind of thing. Even if you're the guy sitting behind a computer making things work, you know how to pick up a gun and fight. Philip and Stephen, the, the, these early leaders that we see, they knew how to take care of those logistics, but step out of that, and they stepped out of that role, and they were serving and caring and among people. They had compassion for the community around them. Nobody was telling them to do this. They weren't, you know, they didn't need to, uh, uh, authority from anybody to do that. They didn't need permission. It was just automatic for Stephen to go out and to be serving and to use the gifts and the abilities that God had to bless people. Now, for his, it was they were supernatural by nature. 
In the Bible, there are three time periods that we see miracles happening. In each three of those periods, they really, if you really look at Scripture, they aren't happening from Genesis to Revelation. They're always in time period when God was giving really new, new revelation of His Word. They were during the time of Moses and Joshua, the giving of the law. That happened in the prophets when Israel went off the rails and God was kind of speaking through the prophets again, kind of straightened them out and gave Isaiah and, or, and or Elijah and Elisha those abilities to do miracles. And then Jesus and the apostles, again, the gospel was coming in. And so Stephen had that ability and was serving and ministering among people. When we think about our lives, we, should, we know that we should compare and have, com or have compassion uh, on people. We know that as followers of Christ, that that's really should be our thing, right? That should be our thing together as a church, some ministries that we organize, but it should be our thing wherever we live. Like when you guys are at work, we should try to be a help to the people around us. We shouldn't be, you know, withholding. Well, you didn't ask nicely or, you know, whatever. We, it should be our thing to be a blessing to the people around us. So when we think about the kind of men that God would be raising up in our midst, think about men who naturally are serving, not just, you know, as it were, helping out logistic things here, but think about people who in their own life who have a bent and are committed to just looking after the needs and ministering and serving people that are interested, that are trying to be a conduit of God's grace and love in their life to turn around and to bless others in their life. That's what we as a church want to be known for. The early church, they were known because they had compassion on people and they loved one another. Unfortunately, we live in our culture, our world today, where churches are known for all kinds of things. And one of the things that we need to be careful about, and is, I think you guys know this, but we are not a politically driven, motivated church. Because what we want to be known for are people that love Jesus, that follow Him, believe His Bible, love one another, and serve those around us. That's what we want to be known for. That should be the driving focus of our heart. Stephen served, and he was out there. Now, it got him in some hot water. As he was speaking, I, we, who knows what those individuals were arguing about and what they came at him with. They were probably either very insecure or didn't like the influence or the things, the way things were going, because they saw him maybe as a second Jesus or somebody you know that was kind of stirring the pot among the people. But he spoke, the Bible says in verse 10, with such wisdom and the Holy Spirit in his life. I'll talk more about the Holy Spirit when I get to Philip. They couldn't withstand what he was speaking. Now, we don't have time to read his sermon in chapter 7, but it's maybe outside of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, it's the greatest sermon in all the New Testament. Stephen unpacked for those individuals what the gospel of salvation was all about from Moses throughout all of the Old Testament. On the spur of the moment, on the spot, he unpacked for them the breadth and width of the the. Uh, of what the Old Testament was all about and what God was doing for salvation. You see, both Philip and Stephen demonstrate a depth spiritually in their life. Stephen demonstrated a deep understanding of God's Word. 
Now, he was not a pastor. Honestly, this sermon, if you read it and look at it, like, that dude knew how to explain and apply God's Word. Like, he probably could have been a pastor. One of the differences between deacons and pastors is deacons ha or pastors have to have the ability to teach and teach well. Not everybody has that ability. There are certain things that I don't do very well. Some of them are by choice, kind of like cooking. I just choose to say that I'm not good at cooking. I probably could become okay but I don't want to, so I don't try, right? Now, other things, I could try my very best, and no matter how much I try, there is no hope for me, right? You, if you're probably being honest, that same way too. So deacons, when you look at the qualifications of deacons and pastors, in some churches, we kind of put pastors here, which we should never put them on a pedestal, right, gang? Seriously, like we're all just as important in God's kingdom and gifting and all of that. Scripture is very clear about all of that. But we tend to put pastors here and deacons here. And I want you to notice when you look at the qualifications of deacons, pastors and deacons are pretty much the same. When you look at them, like deacons, their qualifications ought to be, you ought to see them as, as, with, with such a, a level of responsibility that the only real difference is, is that pastors teach and they oversee the church as a whole. Deacons have to be able to oversee an area of the church, like the, these seven guys. Hey, go make sure that you're taking care of the widows well. Oversee that. They weren't given a holistic oversight of the church as a whole, but they had to be able to be leaders. They had to be able to serve, but they also understood God's Word really well. It doesn't mean they, they didn't have to be able to teach it, but they had to understand it. Now, I don't want to scare some of you guys that may be thinking, you know, is God wanting me? Or maybe people you're thinking about. You don't have to have gone to seminary to be a deacon. Be real honest with you, you don't have to have gone to be a seminary either to be a pastor. It's not a qualification. That's an invention of modern culture and world. Paul never went to seminary, but he was personally tutored by Jesus for three years, plus years. I think that qualifies him far better than anybody that taught me anything. So you don't have to know everything in the Bible to be a deacon. Guys, as a pastor, I don't understand everything in the Bible still. There's some subjects that I go back on that I'm like, what is that really trying to say? Like, it's a little gray. And, and you don't have to understand that. Everything, perfectly. But you've got to have a good grip. The person who's going to serve in that role has to have a, a good understanding to be able to articulate and understand the gospel and the what the, the breadth of how that's shared, there ought to be a, a knowledge across the, the, the scriptures that there's a depth to their life. And then not just understanding it, but being able to have the wisdom to apply it to life. When you look at Stephen's sermon, he took truths and, that, 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 and just applied them in such a way that it was just so clear to what God was doing that the people that he was talking to should have recognized it and should have seen that. That's what God wants us to be. He wants us to grow. That when we trust Christ and we don't know anything, that we just day by day, week by week, we learn and we grow. We grow in our relationship with Him. It grows stronger. It grows closer. Whatever description you want to put to that. But our, our life changes and it becomes deeper spiritually and that, that we know how to apply those things to our lives. That ought to be something that all of us aspire to our whole life. So, but... When we're thinking about deacons, that's not something that we hope those guys get eventually. That's something that where they are now, that they understand God's Word, 
They get it, they live it, and they know how those things apply to their heart and into their life today. So that's the second thing I want you to notice about Stephen. Third thing I want you to notice, I don't know how, this is not a spiritual attribute. Well, it is a spiritual attribute. It's a character thing, but I don't know how to say it other than to say it this way. He had a backbone. He was not a people pleaser. He didn't say, you know, those guys came to him and like, Stephen, what are you doing? Oh, 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 I'm sorry. Did I, if I offended you and just kind of crumple? He had a backbone. He was not a jerk. He was not obnoxious. He was not, you know, confrontational. By the end of his sermon, chapter 7, he's pretty confrontational. Like, you killed Jesus. Like, you did it. But he was telling the truth. It was appropriate. He didn't go around punching people in the jaw. He had a, a backbone in that. In some churches I've been in, deacons don't, don't seem to have much of a backbone to me. In, in some churches, it almost seems like they feel almost like it's their job to be a voice of the congregation or to hear the congregation, whatever. It's like, no, you want men who are deacons that can look at God's Word and can stand up. People that can speak appropriately, that are not pushovers, they're not obnoxious, they're not obstinate, they're not contrarians, they're team players, but people that know when it comes to God's Word and when it comes to things, they know how to speak where they are and their job is just not to please people. You see, all of us should strive to be at that level. We live in a culture today where we get it. You know, it, it, it's tough to live your faith out at work because today it's culturally not cool. I, I still, overall, I'm blown away by the culture that just screams at us to be tolerant in everybody, but then they want you, they're so intolerant. For us, they're like, well, if you're trying to create a big bus for everybody, can't I have a little seat somewhere over here, you know? Like, it makes no sense to me. Like, don't you see the, the fallacy in that logic? It's crazy. You don't want the world to be shamed, but yet you're shaming me for thinking differently than you? Like, that's, that's nuts. <laughs> like, what is wrong with you? So it's challenging, but there's a time in our life, guys, where we have to say, I unashamedly believe in Jesus, and I'm going to choose to live my life this way. We don't want to be jerks. We don't want to be obnoxious, but we need to be people that know confidently what we believe. Sometimes when I see Christians, when they're screaming back and getting all hot and bothered in the face, what I have come to believe is that I'm looking at insecurity in the Christian. You know, when you get offended, oftentimes, it's really not because you're secure in who you are. It's because you're insecure. Like, I, like I know and expect people to think I'm this and that and everything under the sun, to think the things I am are stupid and all of that, and it doesn't, it shouldn't phase me nearly as much. So we ought to just be confident in our God, confident in what we believe, and willing to, to speak that appropriately. Stephen was a man who spiritually had a backbone. He knew how to, how to do that. We, we don't see his family life. I don't, I, unless I'm off the top of my head missing something, I don't even know if he was married, if he had kids, but I get a picture of a guy, a man of God, who know how to, knew how to lead his family, how to live his life, and, and how to bring his whole life and world into alignment with God's Word. And I love that he was a man who knew how to stand up in the face of adversity and didn't apologize, was not ashamed, was not obnoxious, but explained everything that he needed to. 
And then last thing I want you to notice, Stephen preaches this sermon, and I really encourage you to go home and read it because it's, it's amazing and take time to really examine it. But then jumping in chapter 7 to the very end, it ends up costing Stephen his life in verse 54. He shares this message. And in verse 54, the Bible says this, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. They were so mad. You ever been mad? You just kind of find yourself grinding your teeth? That's what they were doing. They were just so just frothing at the mouth. Just, ah. Oh. But he, completely different, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. We don't know what exactly that looked like, but... What the Bible's telling us is there was a depth in Stephen's life that in the middle of that crazy storm, that God blessed him and honored his faithfulness in ministry and standing with a backbone. That is, he gazed into heaven, he saw the glory of God, and there was Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Jesus standing at a place of honor to Stephen. And Stephen says this in verse 56, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That would have made him even madder, and it did. In verse 57 it says, But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears. They're like, Stop talking! And they rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and they, they stoned him. They picked up rocks and threw enough rocks at him until he died. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knew he was dying. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, I don't want anybody here thinking that to be a deacon, you've got to be martyred for your faith or willing to be martyred for your faith. What a personal, amazing story that very much like Jesus, kind of willing on the cross to give up his life and to commend his own spirit into the Father's hand. And just like Jesus, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do, what they're doing. Stephen turned around in the middle of the physical pain and all the accusation and all of the venom and all the stuff coming at him. He's not thinking about his own good. He's actually still thinking about their good and saying, God, please forgive them. I got to tell you, I really do work hard to honor Jesus. But I'm not sure I would land there. If you start throwing a bunch of rocks at me, and to where I think I'm about to die, I'm probably not going to stand there and pray and, hey, God, forgive them. I'm probably going to do some other things. I don't know what. I just, I don't know. But here we see a man of God that had such a walk with God and the grace of God in his life that in the middle of the heat of the moment responded in a way that was to the other person's best interest, and he forgave them even though he knew they were completely wrong and he was completely right. See, forgiveness is never based on whether the other person's guilty or not, whether they're wrong or not, whether you're right or not. We, we struggle to forgive when we know we're right and that other person's wrong. But Stephen said, God, would you please forgive them?
Folks, that's the kind of person that God wants us to be. To forgive in the middle of difficult situations and difficult circumstances when things are hard to move past. But that's what we're looking for and we're aspiring to. I'm challenged by this. I'm I'm challenged to live that way and to continue to reach forward in that. So I'm not saying that you have to be the for, to be a deacon or a pastor in our church. You have to live perfectly and never struggle forgiveness. I'm not saying that. As we shared in our little document, like, hey, we recognize these qualifications are non-negotiable. But guys, we're all growing in all of this. And we're just trying to, each person is trying to, to live in a way that honors God. And we recognize that. We give space for, for all of us to sin and struggle and wrestle with things in life. But what we're looking for are people that know how to, in those difficult situations, to work through and to respond as they should and and to work in such a way that honors God, blesses others, that forgives, and even has a self-control in their own life to walk through that. Because see, if you think about the qualifications for deacons, a lot of those things are because they're going to be involved in people's lives do you think that there were some emotions that were happening with the widows that like my grandmother hasn't eaten in three days and you guys aren't taking care of her? I mean, all of that. And those deacons needed to be able to step in the middle of those difficult conversations and, oh my goodness, we forgot to give you something yesterday. They had to be able to be men who knew how to, to, to take care of things, but who had to walk through difficult, deep things in people's lives. And they needed that depth in their life spiritually. That's the kind of person that God is challenging us all to be, not just deacons, but all of us to live that way. Well, let me share with you quickly two more things, and then I'm going to be done, about Philip. Philip, that's Stephen. Philip dies on the, I mean, Stephen dies in that spot, and God was honored with his death. And then we see in chapter 7 and 8, or chapter 8, excuse me, we see Philip, another those prototype deacons, he goes, we won't read it, but he ends up going to Samaria to share the gospel. Becomes really the first missionary to share the gospel with another people not like him. And he preaches the gospel and sees so many things happening there. In fact, persecution began hitting Jerusalem that the Christians began to spread and they went everywhere. After coming after Stephen's death, kind of the, the heat got turned up on all the Christians. It became dangerous to be a follower of Jesus in Jerusalem because people were being persecuted, thrown into jail. Saul was arresting people. And the Bible says that those early Christians scattered. The apostles stayed, but the early Christians scattered. And everywhere they went, they shared the gospel. It's so fascinating to me that actually the average just, you know, the non-professionals were the ones that were obedient and spreading the gospel around, not the apostles. And so Philip goes into Samaria and he's sharing the gospel and all kinds of things happen. And the apostles heard it and they're like, oh, we need to go down there. And then later on, right after that, in chapter 8, God takes Philip and he tells him in, in verse 30, he tells him to go on a road to go from Jerusalem to Gaza. Look at, look at verse 26. The Bible says this, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Arise, go toward the south to the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Which is the Bible's way of saying, you just really don't want to do that. You know, it'd be like today, like, hey, let's drive to Alaska. Like, really? It's probably 50 below zero today. Like, why would I want to do that? You just, it's a desert place 
Philip is ministering among people. God's doing all kinds of stuff. And God says, yeah, I'm not going to tell you what you're going to do. I just want you to go to the middle of nowhere. Go through a desert. If you know anything about geography from Israel, from there, this guy was from Ethiopia and North Africa. This is just a wasteland. There's just, there's nothing there. And God just says, yeah, Philip, I want you to go on this road. Well, why? How long? Where am I going to go? He could have asked all kinds of questions, but he didn't. In verse 27, he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, uh, a man who had been castrated by the, by the king so that he wouldn't, wouldn't sleep with his wives, I guess. And so he was a, a Bible puts a word to that, it's called a eunuch. So he was an Ethiopian, he was a eunuch, he was of a court of official of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge he was of all her treasure. So he was a man of great standing, he was responsible for the head, all the finances of, of that kingdom. He'd come to Jerusalem to worship in verse 27 and was returning. So he was there for the holy days. He was a God seeker trying to understand what God was all about. And he was returning, seated in his chair, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. So he would have had a scroll of Isaiah, which would have probably cost a year's salary just for that. And he's reading it on his chair as he's heading back home. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him. Dude must have been in shape. I don't maybe the chariot had stopped, but ran. And heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. He recognized it and he asked, Do you understand what you're reading? It's a great question. I love that. Sometimes we make sharing the gospel with people so hard, and Philip's just like, Hey, do you know what you're reading? You know, he just asked him a, a question. And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? He was trying to understand it. And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like sheep was led to the slaughter, like a lamb before its shear is silent. So he opened not his mouth, and in his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation, for his life is taken away from the earth? And the eunuch asked, said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or somebody else? See, God was stirring up in this man's life. We don't know much about this man from Ethiopia there in North Africa, but he was looking for God. He was trying to figure things out. And God was stirring up in his heart that question, is he talking about himself? Is he kind of saying he's about to die? Or has he got somebody else in mind? I don't understand. What do you think, Philip? Look what Philip does. In verse 35, Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. So Philip becomes not only the first one to share the gospel in Samaria, but he becomes the first one to share the gospel and with a whole other nation. And the rest of the story, the, the man responds positively to Christ and, and ends up, I'm sure, bringing the truth of that word, teaching those back in Ethiopia. Two things I want you to recognize. One, Philip was the first missionary, so he wasn't just the first prototype deacon who was concerned about taking care of widows. Again, there was a spiritual depth in these men's lives that he cared about lost people, and he shared the gospel, and he invested in such a way, and he understood the scriptures, and he was bold in that. Not obnoxious, but bold. He didn't have to say, oh, wow, that's funny that you're reading Isaiah. He just said, hey, do you know what you're reading? And he then knew exactly that he needed to tell him about Jesus because he saw God working in his life. But the second thing that I really want you to notice is this. Both of these men knew how to obey God. They knew how to listen 
to the voice of God, the Holy Spirit in their heart, and obey it. Stephen was a man who was full of the Spirit. When the Bible talks about somebody who's full of the Spirit, it means that they were the Holy Spirit was leading them. When the Bible says, don't be filled with wine when there's excess, the Bible's clear, it condemns drunkenness. But instead to be filled with the Spirit, what it's saying is, is you know, when somebody's drunk, they're under the, in, under the influence, they're under the control of alcohol. And it's comparing that to the Spirit. And it's saying, hey, we instead should be filled with the Spirit, led by the Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit should be leading us, influencing us, guiding, controlling our lives. Stephen was a man who knew how to do that. That's why he was able to speak with such wisdom on the spur of the moment and lead his life that way. And Philip, the same exact way. God just said, the angel Lord comes to him and say, hey, Philip, go down that road. Now, had that been you and me, let's be honest with ourselves, all right? We're, there's nothing holy about this place, but we're in church. So if you're ever going to like kid yourself or lie to yourself, it's not here, right? I'm playing with you, you guys. You know that. We're not ever supposed to do that. But let's be honest. If God tells us to do something like that, we're like, well, how long? Why? Where are we going? What am I going to do? When am I coming back? And we come back again to, why? <laughs> I had other plans. What about this and this and this? You do that. I do that. And he just immediately like salutes, says, yes, sir. Just like a private getting a command from a general, it says, General, I have no idea why you're telling me to do that, but yes, sir, I will do it. And he just starts going down that road. I mean, he could be wondering, like, so how far am I going to go? Like, am I just going to walk into the Mediterranean Ocean? Am I, what? I don't know anybody in Gaza. Where am I going to sleep tonight? Like, I, what? I didn't make arrangements. Do they even have a good cell signal out here? I'm like, I can't, like, I don't have any bars. And he just obeyed God. And in the process of obeying God, God used him profoundly in ministry. You see, it wasn't that he set out to have a profound ministry and then obeyed God. He obeyed God and just was made himself available. And out of that, God did profound ministry in his life. See, you and I, each of us, need to be challenged that God speaks specific things to us in His Word that are universal, that are black and white, yes and no, that we all should be striving for. But the Holy Spirit will guide each of our lives to where there are some things He wants us to do individually and some things not, that are not so much a matter of sin, it's just a matter of obedience. By the way, when God tells you to do something you don't, that is sin, kind of like by definition, right? Kind of like when you didn't do what your mom or dad said, like, yeah, you're disobeying them. If Stephen or Philip would have questioned God, disobeyed him, he would have been in, in completely in sin, dishonoring, disobeying God. Which, by the way, sometimes God doesn't bother to tell us to do things because we are obstinate and we do ask questions and we put God on the defense stand to defend himself why he wants us to do something. And just like when you, whether you're a supervisor at work or you're a parent with kid or one of those situations, you really at times just be like, just do it. I know you don't understand, but you just need to do this. <laughs> and you don't want to have to explain every little piece of it. And God looks at us the exact same way and say, I just want you to do this. 
you should trust me. You should obey me. You should be sensitive enough to what I'm telling you to go and do those things. See, each of our lives, we need to strive to live that way. Now, sometimes you and I get things, thoughts in our heads and ideas. They're not from God. They're not. Sometimes they're our own thinking and they're not God at all. I've thought of things before that I thought were God and later on, or I kind of told myself they were from God and later on when they didn't work out or whatever. I'm, yeah, that was me. That wasn't God. We've all done that. But there are those times in our life when God tells us very clearly we shouldn't do it. I'll give you a little simple example. It was a few few winters ago, not too long ago, maybe three, maybe, well, maybe five or six years ago. It's funny how you get older, that just happens, right? Some of you know what I mean. The other, you, you will figure it out. If Jesus tarries, you'll do the same thing. But it was, we had, had snow, and anyhow, long story short, coming down beside our house, a UPS truck went off the road and hit some trees that I had planted probably 10 years before, little guys. Well, they were a little bit bigger than that. Broke two of them off, and it was one of those things, it was like a windbreak. And I'm like, what do I do now? I got this big hole in my, and I was contemplating as he was there, I'm like, I probably need to call UPS, get him to replace this and deal with it. And I just, inside of me, almost screaming in my heart, no. Like, don't get the guy in trouble, don't deal with it. Like, you just don't dare do that. That was God. That was not me. And so I just, hey, man, can we help you? You know, like get out in the country, neighbor's help. Another guy came with his truck, and we pushed him out, and he's on his way, and no worse for the wear. Sometimes in your life, God just has things he wants you to do just because, and you don't ever know why. And, and it may be inconvenient to you. It may not make sense. He just wants you to trust him and to do it. And we should all be living our life every day where God, you can tell me today anything, and I'll follow you and obey you. That's the kind of men we want to be as deacons, who walk and are helping our church, helping people in their lives, working through things, that know how to listen to what God is saying. That It's not just about black and white, what's on the page, but what is God leading us? What should we be doing now in this situation? And men who know how to follow his leading in those situations. That's who we should be as Christians. That's the kind of men that God wants us to have to serve both as pastors and as deacons. So as our team comes up and as we close out our service, what one thing in here has God spoken to you about? What one thing for you personally do you need to think about? Is it you listening to the voice of God in your heart? Sometimes God isn't bothering to tell us anything new because we're not busy obeying His Word. Philip and Stephen were obviously obeying God's Word. And God's Spirit walked with them, was with them. And in turn, in that obedience, God used them both profoundly to bring glory to Him and to work in the world around them. Maybe that's what you need to focus on. Maybe in the middle of it, it's, I know it's challenging and you know, when I've, I've had to put so many things off with people texting, hey, I know we were planning on get together. I got to delay it a couple of weeks. We got COVID and, you know, we're just in a season where we're all juggling different things in life. But it's pretty easy to let our lives become about our own selves and our own needs. And God, we have to take care of business at home. But maybe God's speaking to your heart this morning about needing to loosen up either your schedule or your 
demands of time or your own goals to help somebody else. I don't know. But whatever God is speaking in your heart this morning, would you respond to that? And to say yes to God and listening to his spirit, what he's saying to you, say yes to that this morning and let God change your life through that. So let me pray for you. Father, thank you for the model of Stephen and Philip. Thank you, Father, of just how they live their life, obedient to you, willing to, to just obey you no matter what it meant. I'm so blown away by both of them, just of, of how they lived. Father, you use average, ordinary people to do extraordinary things through in such a way that you get the glory and other lives are touched. So, Lord, help us to live that way as a church. I pray that you would surface men in our church who... Uh, are able to and want to and are living that in the same way and just father would you help us to walk through this process well i pray lord help us as a church to represent you faithfully and so well in the capital region in the world this year i pray mm -hmm.